0: morning. I'm both overwhelmed and incredibly grateful that we have come to the text before us that deals with the death of our Savior. I hope that you will feel the weight of what Matthew is writing in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago as we started this section of the gospel that this is the pinnacle of our faith. It is The center of what you and I believe, what we trust. and So this morning I've prayed, this week I've prayed, God help us to get what you are putting before us here. I don't want us to try to make it complex, although there are many complexities in what is going on here as far as what is actually happening in the Jewish culture, what is happening with the Roman government. I want us to see how awesome and great what our Savior is doing here in this text is this morning. So I want you to go to the text with me today. We're actually going to cover through verse 61 of the text that's before you. I'll read the other two sections as we get to them. As we look at, beginning in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 27, and we consider together Jesus' second trial... The last time that we were together, we dealt with Jesus' first trial, which was before the religious leaders, before those Jewish scribes and elders, along with the high priest at the high priest's palace at his house where they had an overnight trial to condemn Jesus to death. In that first trial, they condemned Jesus and decided he must die because they had sought out false testimony against him. And finally, found two who agreed on their false testimony. And both of them would say, Jesus has said, or this man has said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest tore his robes. He was so overwhelmed that Jesus in his declaration of his uh, own deity in that moment, Jesus' own understanding of who he was was uh, displayed there and even further as he responded to the high priest and their questioning after that and he goes on to proclaim that soon you will see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven and they determined that because he was claiming to be god he must be killed of course, today we know in our text before us that the Jewish authorities had no authority to take life, to kill a person, to impose capital punishment on someone for breaking their own law, so they had to depend on the Roman government with whom they had somewhat of a relationship. And so we pick up in verse 11 in our text today with Jesus having been brought to Pilate, the governor, as we read in the first two verses last time in chapter 27, so I want us to look at Jesus before the Roman governor, the one, by the way, that Matthew is showing us very clearly. Don't miss the irony of what's in this text. Pilate is the one who has the authority Jesus and the elders and the scribes and the high priest and the Sanhedrin have been in this authority battle. And now we come to the one who has authority and we watch how he deals with me to impose such a penalty. And indeed, I guess what we see down in verse 24 and 25 is Pilate some kind of half-heartedly Imposing or deciding in the case that Jesus indeed will be killed. I do want you to know, as we come to this text this morning, church, that we come before a text that shows us the actual circumstances in Jesus' life that lead to his death. Burial and resurrection But let's make no mistake What Matthew has shown us through this entire gospel Is that this has been from the very birth of Jesus Lay him in a manger in a stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem Until the time that we are reading about in our text today As Jesus stands before Pilate It is God's plan that is coming about And so while we will look at what is happening in the temporal world, while we need to look at what's going on with the Jewish Sanhedrin and how God chooses to bring Jesus uh, to trial and how he uses Pilate to be the one who will ultimately impose the death penalty on him, it is God's will for his son to suffer and to die. Because God is doing something. God is working salvation for you and me. So I want us to explore this passage this morning from the perspective of four questions, two of which we'll find on the lips of Pilate in the beginning of our text today. Four questions that I want to help us explore what Matthew is saying to us about what is going on at the cross. Question number one is found in verse 11. Jesus stands before the governor, that is Pilate, and the governor asks him this question. Are you the king of the Jews? Finally, in the mouth of a Gentile ruler, we have the question that is Uh, uh, given to Jesus so that he can respond the question that Matthew has been dealing with from the very beginning. If you'll remember, Matthew's gospel starts out with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's point in the gospel is to show us who he is and indeed that he Is the promised king, the one who was promised in Genesis 3, the one who was promised in Genesis 11, and then as you go all the way through the Gospels, excuse me, the prophets and uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament to the Gospels, Matthew is saying the one that God has promised to come through the entire Old Testament, this is he, Jesus, the king. And now as he stands not before the Jewish religious crowd but before the Gentile ruler he asks him the correct question are you the king of the Jews This is the key question of Matthew's gospel Who is Jesus And it's not only the key question of the gospel friends it's the key question of every group of people that have ever walked upon the earth. It's the key question of every one of us. It's the key question that you must answer. And it's why we're preaching. It's why Matthew is written. It's the reason God has given us the word of God is to show us who Jesus is and I want to propose to you this morning that in the text before us we have at least the two Possibilities and you must decide you can't read the gospel and walk away without deciding What do you believe about Jesus? He is either the Messiah King that Matthew is presenting The one that was promised by all of the prophets and all of Moses and the law that he gave prophesied to come and bring salvation to us or he is a Galilean prophet and a threat to the powers that be in the Jewish religion and to bring it to our day he's just a good prophet but he's not God he's not the Savior he doesn't have the ability to redeem who is Jesus to you there's no question about Jesus own claim about himself His entrance into Jerusalem just a few chapters ago, his speech and teaching and confrontation in the temple left no question. Jesus is proclaiming he is the king sent from God who has come to bring in. He is proclaiming the uh, 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 death, if you will, of the temple. And he's saying that I am the new temple of God. I am the one, the mediator between God and man by whom, through whom you must go to meet and relate to our great God. So if there is no question about what Jesus believes about himself, I want to bring you back to uh, one philosopher's suggestion about what you must do with Jesus. And that is C.S. Lewis. Who says that Jesus must either be seen as one who is a deceiver? He has either intentionally knows that he is not the key, but is deceiving those around him. He knows that he is not the Savior. He knows that he's not the Son of God, but he's trying to deceive the religious leaders and the crowds just to get a lot of folks following him. And so he is a uh, liar. Or he's deceived himself. Perhaps you read the Gospels and you see Jesus really does believe this stuff about himself. He's not just intentionally deceiving others. He really does believe he's the Son of God. In which case, he has deceived himself and he's a lunatic. He's a madman because he doesn't even know who he is himself. So Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he actually is who he says he is he's Lord. And friends, this morning, your life, not just your mental ascent, not just you sitting in a pew this morning saying, here's who I believe is. Oh, I believe he's Lord. Your life reveals who you believe Jesus is. What do you trust? Not what you say you trust, not the answer that you know that you would give if somebody said, what do you believe about Jesus? No, he's the son of God. Do you believe he died? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? Yes. Mental ascent is one thing that we have to come to. You have to understand what Jesus or what the gospels are saying about Jesus, but to believe that is to believe it at a heart level, a trust level, at the very bottom of who you are, that you look to Jesus as the one whom you trust. So he is either liar, lunatic, or he actually is Lord. And Pilate wants to know, Jesus, what do you believe? Are you the king of the Jews? I want to ask you this morning as you're sitting in the sound of my voice, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe? Jesus in this trial responds to Pilate, you have said something. But when Pilate then comes and says, you don't respond to any of the charges that they bring, not even one Pilate is amazed that Jesus does not even respond. He doesn't bring the defense. It's as if Jesus is saying a couple of things to us. First, my life has held up who I am. You know what you have seen. You know what I have done. And Jesus has said to even the religious leaders that are there, they will not hear from him. They will not uh, uh, see him again until they see him sitting at the right hand of power coming in the glory of his father. And so he remains silent Isaiah says this, it describes it to us, that he, like a sheep before his shears, remains silent. And that's what Jesus is doing. So much so that Pilate is amazed that he wouldn't even defend himself. And so, Pilate has to come up with something that he will do, beginning in verse 15. We've read it, it's the feast of the Passover. Matthew says it was the custom of the governor to release... One prisoner to the people, and so he comes up with what he believes will be an easy choice for them, this notorious prisoner that Matthew calls in verse 16 Barabbas. Pilate asks them the question in verse 21: Which of the two do you want me to release? Do you want Jesus, the Christ, or do you want Barabbas? And the crowds had already been influenced and persuaded by the elders and the chief priest. And they say then in the end of verse 21, release to us Barabbas. And so our second question that I want us to address this morning is found there in verse 22. Pilate says to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, friends, I want to remind you this morning that if you will answer the first question, who is Jesus? Are you the king? Once you answer that question, it will help you answer the second question. Then, what shall I do with Jesus? The first thing that struck me as I read through the text that we have before us this morning, friends, is the fact that there are many different people in many different groups that are introduced to us here in the passion of our Savior that is at his death, burial, and resurrection and how each of them treat Jesus in different ways. We've already seen Peter and the disciples. We saw how Judas treated Jesus. We saw how the religious leaders at their uh, uh, trial treated Jesus. In the text that we've read for today, we see a couple of other folks. Again, we are introduced to the religious leaders and how they treat Jesus. If you read verse 18, you find out that Pilate even discerns that the religious leaders are treating Jesus the way that they are out of envy. They are motivated by envy of Jesus, by envy perhaps of his followers, by envy of perhaps of his power, by envy perhaps of his authority, or perhaps of his ability to relate to God. Pilate knows they are envious of him, and so I would say to you this morning, what then shall we do with Jesus? The religious leaders in the text before us, out of envy, desire Jesus to be out of their way, and the only way that they see to do that, because they've already tried to shut him up with arguments, they've already tried to uh, uh, marginalize him, and it's not possible, they were not uh, successful at that. So this morning what happens is the religious leaders understand and know the only way we're going to be rid of Jesus is to kill him. And so out of envy, motivated by envy, they want his death. What shall shall we do then with Jesus who is called Christ, the Messiah? What shall we do with him? Let's kill him. The crowd, on the other hand, motivated in different ways perhaps we could speculate on their motivations, but they follow the religious and political leaders no matter the cost. I was tempted to stop here this morning. we got a lot of ground to cover in the text, but let me just say that statement again, and then you take it. The crowd is motivated, perhaps in different ways, but however that is, they're... Motivated to follow religious and political leaders no matter the cost. And so their thirst and violence for blood, their ability and motivation to maybe please or maybe to to just listen to their religious leaders at the time that were not recognizing Christ, they could be seen. Even a Gentile pagan is understanding their envy about this man and why they are doing that. They listen to the political leaders and they then... Follow them and ask not only for Barabbas to be released, but for Jesus to be crucified. You see, that really is what this question is about to the crowds, isn't it? You want Barabbas. I get that. I'll release Barabbas. Then what shall I do with Jesus? Pilate had all kinds of authority to do all kinds of things, and he didn't have to ask the crowds, and yet he wanted to capitulate to the crowds in this case, and the crowds cry out, crucify him, to which Pilate responds in verse 23, what evil has he done? And the crowds cry even louder, crucify him. And I can't help but bring your attention to verse 25, when Matthew shows us all the people answered. He is now not saying the crowds answered. He's going out of his way to include all the people, that is, all of those who are Jews at this time before him, cry out. And listen to this cry. His blood be on us and our children. Their thirst for violence and blood, their motivation, whatever it may be, has led them to be willing to take the culpability for evil in killing this innocent man. And they're putting that not only themselves, they're saying, and our children, we will take it. We can take responsibility for our own actions. Now listen, friends, this morning, how... Will you respond to Jesus? The question before us is what then shall we do to Jesus? I've talked to people in our culture and I brought this up before you from this pulpit before. Let me show you in that statement that there is a danger of many people in our culture of not being willing to acknowledge who Jesus is or they're not willing to acknowledge their need of him. And that's where the crowd is. We don't need him. Put his blood on our hands. We can take responsibility for what we have done. Friends, the Bible teaches, and you know experientially, that you are a sinner and that there will be a day of reckoning. There's a day coming where we will all stand before the judge. In this text, the irony of this text is the man who has authority is sitting on the judgment seat in verse 19. He is sitting on the judgment seat. He has the authority to make the judgment, and yet he listens to the crowds. And they say, we'll take responsibility. And Pilate, in this symbolic act that means absolutely nothing before the real judge, tries to wash his hands and say, I'm not, I'm not culpable here. And the people say, we'll take it. Friends, there are people that are living in their day this day that think, I don't need God. If I need God then I don't want it. If I don't have what it takes for me to live and to go into eternity, then I don't want it. And they will stubbornly enter into an eternal death because they're not willing to acknowledge, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. I can't live forever on my own. I can't pay the price for my sin on my own. Must move. Let's move and look out Pilate. Not only the religious leaders motivated by envy, envy, the crowd motivated them in many ways, listened to and persuaded by the the religious leaders. What about Pilate, the one who had authority? Notice that we see this this irony in the text about Pilate. He found no fault in Jesus and was actually amazed that Jesus silenced his lack of defense of his own in his own trial before the one who had authority to kill him. Not only that, in verse 18, we find out that Pilate knew the motive of the religious leaders. He was the one that Matthew says discerns that they are bringing him before him because of envy. So he knows that he is innocent. He knows the motive that that, uh, 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 motivates, what motivates the religious leaders is envy. And not only that, Matthew is careful to tell us in verse 19, besides that, While he is sitting on the judgment seat, while he is there in the courtroom, his wife sends him a message that says have nothing to do with this righteous man. So now we have the wife of a pagan leader sending a note calling Jesus a righteous man and the religious people that should have recognized him wanting to kill him because he's evil and wicked. What irony that Matthew is showing us is going on here. It gives me hope and it gives you hope. It means that those of us who have no hope and realize we are nothing, we have the ability to recognize who Jesus is and respond. So, not only does Pilate know it, not only to discern why Jesus is before him, his own wife then says, "Have nothing to do with this righteous man." And Matthew is going out of his way to show us that the one who had the authority is easily then controlled by. The religious leaders in the crowds. And so you get down to verse 23 and he says, why? What evil has he done? And they shout all the more, let him be crucified. And so, verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he decided to wash his hands of the event. The crowds controlled Pilate, the one who had authority. Uh, let me take you over to a couple of other verses. Look in verse 27 following how the soldiers respond to him. And I'll say, there are some people who respond, what then shall we do with Jesus? They respond to Jesus with envy. I'm not going to follow him. They respond to Jesus with the way the crowds did. Crucify him. I don't want to hear. There are people that I've opened or knocked on their door. They've opened the door. People in this very neighborhood that once they they opened the door knew that we, me, Steve, knocking on this particular door, we were pastors of the church, introduced ourselves, and we have been asked to leave. Some people respond in that way to the gospel, to Jesus. Pilate, the one who had authority to do something, was not able to. The crowds influenced him. There are people that won't come to Jesus in the same way. The soldiers in verse 27 go a step further. They mock him. They gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him to say, Oh, this is a king. We'll show you what you need to look like, king. They put on his head uh, a crown of thorns. They put a reed in his right hand to mock the, the, uh, the scepter of a king. And then they kneel before him and mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then he spit him, grabbed the reed out of his hand and hit him over the head. Some reply or respond to Jesus, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They mock him. They mock his followers. And that's what's happening here. Verse 31, they took the robe off and led him away to be crucified. One more. One more. Skip all the way down to verse 54 with me. After all that happens around Jesus' crucifixion, all the dust is settling for a moment. It's almost as if in the middle of this hurricane and all this stuff is happening, the eye moves over. Jesus has breathed his last. He's given up his spirit. Verse 50. Those who are around see that the eye of the storm is there, and there's this, this quiet moment in verse 54 when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, the centurion was most likely a part of those who had just been mocking Jesus. If he wasn't, he was certainly a part of the crucifixion on Golgotha, and he was there keeping watch over Jesus, which verse 36 says, after they had crucified him, then they sat down to keep watch over him, and they started casting lots for his clothing. One of those soldiers that saw all of this occur and saw Jesus' response to all of it and saw what he had done in the end says truly. This was the Son of God. Folks, this morning, not only do you have to answer the question, is Jesus the King? But you also have to answer the question, what then shall I do with Jesus? Some of you this morning have never really decided. It's not that you're not doing something with Jesus, but you've never decided He is King, and I'm going (coughs) to bow to Him and surrender my life to Him. I want to invite you this morning to trust in Him. Now, let's move and deal with the rest of this passage beginning in verse 32. I I'll to ask our third question, and that is this. Why didn't Jesus come off the cross? Why did Jesus suffer and die on a Roman cross? We know He had the power to come off. And here, in this temptation, perhaps the last temptation that we know of before Jesus... The Jewish leaders are mocking him. The chief priest describes and The elders are mocking him again. And they ask him this question down in verse 42. He saved others. Sorry, they're not asking. They're making a statement. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Why would Jesus not come off the cross if there are those who are saying, if he will come down, we will believe in him. I'm going to read this portion of the text for us as we consider the question why didn't Jesus come off the cross? Verse 32 read with me. As they went out they found a man of serene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross and when they came to a place called Golgotha which means place of the school excuse me, place of a school they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall but when he tasted it he would not drink it When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself." If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also, chief priests and scribes, the elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Friends, there is one sure way. To get me, and perhaps some of you, to do something that I really don't want to do. And that's to tell me I can't do it. From the time I was a young boy, I was motivated by somebody daring me, or double dog daring, or God forbid, triple dog daring me, something, right? And uh, I've overcome much of that today, and I don't fall to the temptation of dares like I did when I was a younger man. But one way to test the will of a man... Is to say you can't do that. I am sure yesterday there were people that experienced that very thing. Your truck won't go through that water. I bet it will. I bet you won't do it. And then Steve Leonard and the fire department is going out to get you. Why? Because we don't like to be told what we won't do. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's hanging on the cross for our sins and they are going by wagging their head saying save yourself if you are the son of God. Prove it. Prove that you're the son of God. Come down and we'll believe you. Verse 42, he saved others. He can't save himself. Don't you know friends, we've already heard Jesus say, do you not think, he said this to his disciples, do you not think I could call 10,000 legions of angels and my father would send them just like that? But what got me in reading this text that I want to bring your attention to is the religious leaders at the end of verse 42. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Friends, no doubt that we can go a couple of ways here, but I want to ask the question to you. Why didn't Jesus come off the cross? If they would have believed him, Well, we could go back and talk about the fact that he had done all of these miracles. He had preached the way that he had preached. As a matter of fact, this very week started with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead on the outskirts of Jerusalem. No doubt the story had come to them. And if they wanted proof of Jesus' power over death, all they would have to do is go talk to Lazarus. And they could know, was this man dead? Is he now alive? And they say to him on the cross... Just come down, and we'll believe you. Let God say. He said he was God's son. Certainly God won't let his son die. Why would God ever let his son die? And why would you stay there if you are the king, the Messiah? How could you die on a cross if you're really king? Why didn't Jesus come off the cross? They took him to Golgotha a place of suffering I'm going to call your attention back to verse 35 the Bible in Matthew's gospel deals with the crucifixion in these simple words and it has struck me since I was a young man reading the gospels and when they had crucified friends I want to say two things about that first you don't need to watch some movie to understand what's going on in Matthew's gospel God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the written word. And so I'm not looking for the gross nature of what's going on in the cross, but I also want to say on the other hand, you didn't have to describe crucifixion to anybody that Matthew was originally writing to. They knew the horror of crucifixion. They knew the horror of hanging on a tree and dying of asphyxiation of suffocating because your diaphragm could not keep the strength to push up and to breathe and to take air in. They knew the horror of bleeding on the cross. You and I need to understand that Jesus is there hanging between heaven and earth because he loved us. And if there were another way, remember just a couple of weeks ago when Jesus prayed to his father, God, if there is any other way, let it be. But if not, your will be done. My friends, the reason Jesus would come off the cross is because we needed someone to take the penalty of our own sin. We needed someone who would take the penalty of our sin. And what is that penalty but death? Why didn't he come off the cross? Because it was God's plan from the beginning. Not because Pilate had controlled it. Not because the Jewish leaders had controlled it. But because God had so ordained at this point in history for the Roman government to be the one that would ultimately declare the death of God's son And take him to a Roman cross where he would suffer perhaps the most excruciating death that you and I know about. That was imposed by any nation throughout history. And it was God's will for him to die. And my friends, he had to die. If you and I are to live. He had to die. Jesus had the power to come off the cross. He did not because of his love for you and I, which brings us to the last question I want to deal with, and that is this. Then what does the death of Jesus mean? What does the death of Jesus mean? I want to read the last part of this text for us, beginning in verse 45, and take us to answer this question. What does the death of Jesus mean? Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, that is noon There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, who is Jesus? What then shall we do with Jesus? Why didn't he come off the cross? And the final, perhaps most important question for us this morning is what does the death of Jesus mean? What does it all mean then? And Matthew shows us very clearly here. I want to show you four elements of his death that help us understand what the cross means for us. The first one is found in verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's quoting here Psalm 22. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My friend at the cross, here's what we find. I can say it in the most concise way by saying to us, God's love and God's holiness are both satisfied at the cross. That is, God's love for you is providing a way for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. But God's holiness is not compromised one bit at the cross. And so Jesus is crying out to his father, the one who is the beloved of the father. And he's saying, why have you forsaken me? Why would it be that the father could not look upon sin and would dump all the wrath of a holy god upon his son why because he loves us but he's not willing to let his holiness suffer anything he will not compromise his holiness he cannot overlook sin but he himself provided his own son he would not spare jesus but gave him up so that you and i could have life what does the cross mean it means that God's love for you is demonstrating the death of his own son. And God's holiness is not compromised because the wrath for your sin, the payment for your sin and mine is found there. So mercy and justice meet at the cross. It would be a great place for you to say amen next time I preach that. <laughs> Verse 50. The promised penalty. The wage for sin is paid. One of my favorite songs that Matt Marsh sings is, uh, I don't even know the name of it, it's, I call it Come Away. Um, but it, the chorus says, come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. And in that chorus it says, what Jesus was doing at the cross is trampling over death by death. In verse 50 of this text, the Bible says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded it up his spirit. Friends, Jesus died for me. Death had to occur. Why? In the garden, Jesus said to Adam and Eve, If you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans chapter 6 says to us, The wages, the payment for sin is death. Friends, either you will pay that, or you will let the payment that Christ made on the cross be sufficient, and it is to satisfy our God. So either you will hold your own payment and make that payment for eternity because it would take your eternal death to pay for your sin. Or you can come to Christ, confess that sin, repent, turn of that, and trust in Him. Friends, the cross means this, the promised penalty of God who said in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. And we find in Galatians that in the fullness of time, born of woman, Christ came to pay for our sins. Friends, death that is yours was trampled over by the death that was our Savior's. He defeated death by his own death. And so the promised penalty, that is death, is paid in the death of the Savior. Thirdly, verse 51, it means the separation between God and man is removed. Look at verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that 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 uh, uh, dividing line between the outer part of the temple and the holy of holies, that dividing line that only the high priest could go into once a year and even then they had to tie a rope around him just in case there was some unholiness in him and the veil that went before him of smoke and incense was not uh, enough to keep the holiness of God from striking down man and sin even there he would go into that Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. And this is showing us that the death of Christ, the ultimate lamb is slain. His blood is shed. And that blood is sufficient for all time, for all people. Those who come find hope and forgiveness in the cross and you find a separation that your sin caused between you and God, vanished with the tearing of the temple veil, the very presence of God can be known to you. And God has promised his spirit to come and indwell us so that there is no separation in Jesus' death made your relationship with God possible. He made the indwelling of the spirit of Jesus possible for you through repentance and faith. And then finally, my favorite part of this text. I hope you don't ask me a whole lot about it afterward because I don't even know that I understand it. I just believe it. Verse 52. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went in the holy city and appeared to many. Here's what I know the death of Christ meant. It means eternal life is possible. Friends, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, When we see death enter into our world, and you get to Genesis chapter four, and we find out that it's not Abel because he's killed by his brother, and it's not Cain because he killed his brother. And we get to Genesis chapter five and we find out so-and-so lived and died, and -and so-and-so lived and died, and -and so-and-so lived and died, and we're crying out for the question: Can we overcome the penalty of death? Will there ever be one who would come? Could it be this one that Jesus that God promised in in Genesis three fifteen? Could it be Seth? Could it be Noah? Could it be and you fill in the blank for generation after, generation after generation after generation after generation people lived and died upon the earth revealing to us the effects of our sin and death is still here in our day but we have the glimpse and the hope here at the cross that the tombs were opened at the death of Jesus and bodies of the saints who had fallen and were raised from the dead and it gives us hope we can have eternal life in Christ friends you Can have eternal life because Jesus died in your place. What does it mean? It means love and holiness meet. You can experience the love of God without compromising the holiness of God because His one and only Son died for you. It means that you don't have to fear death. Friends, it changes everything. It changes the way I look at my life. It changes the way I look at my family. It changes the way that I do business, the way that I talk to other people. Why? Because life is possible. And in Christ, I have eternal life. I no longer fear death. You can have this life. Where at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw life, the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my son. Now I'm happy.